that Jesus would ride in on a donkey. They would lay palm branches at his feet and declare Hosanna, save now. On Monday, you would have the withering of the fig tree. Um, Tuesday, oh, I forgot already what happened Tuesday. Wednesday, nothing. Cleansing of the temple, maybe Monday, and then Tuesday, fig tree, somewhere like that. Um, And then Thursday, you have the Garden of Gethsemane, where he goes late in the evening, prays. And then Friday morning, and just throughout Friday, the trials and then the, um, the crucifixion ultimately on Friday. And so that's Good Friday. Saturday, he's buried in the, in the grave. And then today, Sunday, he would rise from the dead. So just a busy week. I was thinking my busy week, and I was like, man, that's no week compared to Jesus' week. His was really a busy week. So as I was praying and just uh, considering um, Friday, the Good Friday service, the crucifixion, you know, him paying the debt that we owed, carrying our sins upon the cross for the first time in all of history, being forsaken of the Father, that moment that he's on the cross, carrying your sin, carrying my sin. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in that moment that um, the Father could no longer look upon the Son carrying our sin turns his back from him and so he bore that he carried that he did that for us so as i was praying throughout the week and just uh, the lord gave me philippians chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 the bible says that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means i may attain to the resurrection from the dead and so just within those two scriptures paul writing to this church in philippi paul at the end, close to the end, he's in, he's, it's one of the prison epistles. He's, he's, in, he's in handcuffs. He's chained to a guard. He's writing this, and he wants to know God. He says, he starts with that I may know him. And as he reflects upon knowing God, he realizes that there's, there's two ways that he's going to be able to press into this relationship with God. It's going to be through the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of suffering. And so there's a dynamic there where you have Good Friday, the fellowship of suffering, and then obviously Sunday, Easter Sunday, the resurrection. And so I was thinking about yesterday, putting this message together for the resurrection. Man, we got so much, 66 books. The New Testament, the first four books are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and half of the Gospels is given over to the last week of Jesus' life on earth. The last week would be the Passion Week. It's what he came for. It's, it's, it was the cross. Everything was moving towards the cross. And, and so as I sat down, I just wrote out three questions. What is the resurrection and what does it mean? Number two, what is the effect of the resurrection on some people in the Bible, like Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene? And then three... Three things the resurrection means to the believer. And it's just neat how the Lord began to answer those questions for me. And so that's what we'll do. We'll answer those three questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the ability that it has to be able to pierce through 
the depth of where we live. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that it would come alive, and Lord, that we would be able to receive what you have for us this morning. I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. What is the resurrection? Again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll jump around a little bit. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll look at verses 1 through 4, but you have in a nutshell, in four verses, the whole purpose of Jesus' ministry. You have the gospel. The word gospel is evangelion. It means good news. And the good news is that sinners can be set free through what Christ accomplished, carrying our sins upon the cross. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word, which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What is the resurrection? Jesus was dead. There's all kinds of theories going around. There's all kinds of conjecture. There's all kinds of thoughts. But Jesus was dead. And he laid his life down, and he would say that. Nobody takes my life, I lay it down. I lay it down for my brethren. No greater love has anyone than to lay down his life. And so Jesus' expression of love to you and to me is the cross. And that's Good Friday. He would be buried in a tomb, borrowed. Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, would have this tomb that had never been used, Jesus would be laid in it, and on the third day, he would rise from the dead. That is simply the resurrection. What does it mean, second part of the first question? We go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, same chapter starting at verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, of all men, the most pitiable. So what does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? Everything that Paul is saying here in the opposite form. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, then we're still in our sins. We're to be pitied and all of these other things. But Christ has risen from the dead and it means that we have hope. It means that we have life. It means that we're not the ones to be pitied, but those who have yet to receive this gift that God offers are the ones to be pitied. Question number two, what was the effect of the resurrection 
on different individuals in the Bible. Peter, and hopefully you'll be able to identify with one of these or, or more than one, but Peter is just a character that I'm, I'm growing to love more and more as I study. Uh, a fisherman, a man's man, that's not my part, but just a guy that kind of just thinks or, or says what he's thinking prior to maybe the filter of allowing it to go through. And so in one of Peter's mess, uh, great moments in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 16, I'll kind of sum it up for you, but Jesus comes into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give various answers. Some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And verse 16 says, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As you continue on in that very same chapter, verse 20 says, Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God but of the things of men. And so Peter, before the resurrection, knowing God, having relationship with God, but in one moment, inspired by the Father to be able to give the ding, 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 right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in the very next moment, Peter thinking, ha, I think I, I think I got this thing figured out. All right, so Jesus says, hey, Time to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be crucified. But on the third day, I'm going to rise, Peter. Uh, not so, not on my watch, Lord. It's not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of the flesh. And so that, that's a picture of Peter before the resurrection. He knows God. He has a relationship with God. One moment he can be inspired by the Father and, and given an answer that nobody else would be able to give. Another moment in Peter's life would be found on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Verse 5 says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what, it, what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And then a cloud came over them and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no, no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Verse 9 and 10 are important. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Again, Peter 
He knows Jesus. He's been, he's been walking with Jesus for a period of time. He, he invites Peter, James, and John up a little further, up on the mountain. And there appears to them Moses and Elijah. And, and they have these super glowing outfits Moses, of course, is already dead, and Elijah, of course, is already ascended in the rapture when the chariot of fire takes him up. And there they are. I think they're having a, a, a little, um, you know, staff meeting about Revelation chapter 13, the two witnesses that are going to come back in the time of the tribulation. That's just my guess. And then Peter, kind of not knowing what to say, just opens his mouth and says, Lord, it's um, Lord, it's good that we're here. Um, let's make three tra- tabernacles, three tents, Lord. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Putting Jesus on the same plane as the law and the prophets. And then the Father has to intervene this time and interrupt and say, no, 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 no. Hey, hey, Peter, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The law and the prophets... They were just, Moses and Elijah, they were just testifying to him. And so in that instant there, Peter needed to be interrupted by the Father pre-resurrection. In Mark's gospel, Jesus would predict Peter's denial. And it's very telling. It's Matthew, um, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Then Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. And so in this third account of Peter's life, Jesus is letting him know. In another gospel, it said, Peter, Satan has asked for you by name to sift you like wheat. The picture in my mind of sifting wheat is more like a a cheese grater. Peter, Satan wants to grab you and grate you like cheese. But I've prayed for you that when your faith is restored... You can go and talk to the brethren. And so Peter, in pride, knowing his love for God, knowing his passion for Jesus, knowing that he was down for the cause, and yet not understanding his weakness. After the resurrection, the effect of the resurrection in Peter's life, well, right now on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves in chapter... Six, But if you were to go through the book of Acts, you would see sermon after sermon where Peter, having come in contact with the risen Lord, having been restored in John's gospel, chapter 21, he, he's a different Peter. And I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination definitely of the resurrection, but also the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would come upon him in a dynamic way and empower him to be able to do what God was calling him to do. If you were to read through the book of Acts, you get to chapter 2 and you see the day of Pentecost comes and, and t- 
tongues of fire, cloven fire are upon the heads of the apostles as they are in the upper room and they begin to speak with new tongues, new dialects. And they're speaking the wonderful works of God. And Peter is there in the midst and, and, and the people are marveling. They're all there for this day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, after the crucifixion in this case, right? And so 50 days after... And the people that are there, they're visiting Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And the people that are there begin to proclaim, um, you know, what's going on? Are these people drunk? (laughs) They're all just babbling and speaking and just kind of shouting out all these wonderful works of God in our own different dialects. And it names them all there in verse 10, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews, Mesopotamia, Judea. So they're hearing the wonderful works of God in all of these different languages and they accuse them mockingly of being drunk. And Peter stands up and he says, wait, wait, hold up, hold up. These men aren't drunk as you suppose. These men aren't under an influence of the spirits as you think they are. They're under an influence, but it's not the influence you think. And then he goes on to preach and, and to hold those that are present that crucified Jesus accountable in this most wonderful sermon that Peter, P- Peter preaches. And 3,000 people that day would give their lives to the Lord. As we continue to go on in the book of Acts, in chapter 3, Peter and John are heading to the temple. And as they go to the temple, there's this guy that's lame from his, from his birth. And his ankles don't work. And he's begging for alms. He's begging for money. And Peter says, hey, hey, look at us. Look at us. And he looks up, expecting to receive something. And Peter says, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And Peter reaches and grabs him by the hand and lifts him up. And his ankle bones are restored. A man that had never walked. And he's leaping and shouting and praising God as they go into the temple. And that was Peter that just, I guess, getting a word from God. Can you imagine coming across someone in that condition? And what's that, God? What do you, what do you, am I hearing you? Oh, grab him by the hand. Tell him, rise up and walk. And God heals him through Peter. As you continue on, the religious leaders are upset with Peter and the apostles, and they incarcerate them. And they tell them not to preach in the name of Jesus any longer. And and Peter says, we can't but preach in this name. I've seen the risen Lord. I've come in contact with Jesus raised from the dead. And so he wouldn't be stopped. Peter, by no stretch of the imagination after the resurrection, would be a perfect man. In the Gospel of Galatians, Paul would have to rebuke Peter because he he was kind of a two-face. He was one way in the presence of those who were Jewish, and then he behaved another way in the presence of those who were Gentile. And Peter calls him on it. I mean, Paul calls Peter on it. And so after the resurrection, what I notice in Peter's life is a refinement Through the resurrection, Peter was convinced more than ever in his life that no longer do I want to live for this and claim to die for this, but I will literally die for this. 
History tells us that Peter would be crucified. And he didn't want to be crucified for his faith like his Lord, so he asked to be crucified upside down. As we look at our next person, what was the resurrection, or what was the effect of the resurrection on James? James was the half-brother of Jesus. And there's a point in the Gospels where the Gospels declare that Jesus' brothers did not believe in who he was. Now imagine this. You're the brother, the half-brother. Joseph is Jesus' stepfather, right? Born of a virgin, Mary. So Mary's his mom. They're in this household. And James is alive. I mean, Joseph is alive at this time where this saying goes out. So at some point, we believe that Joseph died because he's no longer listed further in the Gospels. But at this point, they're telling Jesus, their half-brother, hey, Jesus, why don't you reveal yourself? Why don't you do a miracle? Make yourself known. And then the commentary in in the Gospel is, and this they said because they didn't believe in Jesus at this point. Well, James would be in the upper room. The effect of the resurrection in James' life was one who grew up with Jesus, one who had familiarity of who Jesus was, but didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. And I think that there are many in the church like that, unfortunately. An awareness of who Jesus is. Imagine growing up in the same house as Jesus. Yeah, I know Jesus. Do you? (laughs) Do you know Jesus? Because the Gospels declared that James, you didn't even believe in him until after the resurrection. And then finally, what was the effect of the resurrection on Mary Magdalene? A lot is written about Mary Magdalene in the scriptures, but a lot of conjecture is given as well to Mary Magdalene. What we know specifically based on the word of God about Mary Magdalene was Jesus delivered her from seven demons. And after that, you would see this desire to be with Jesus where everyone else was kind of a hit and miss. Mary Magdalene stayed with Jesus through the torture of the crucifixion when all the disciples ran and hid. She was present at the foot of the cross. She was the first to the empty tomb to be an ambassador for Christ to tell the apostles that Jesus had risen from the dead. And with Mary Magdalene, it's just one of those people who, you know, to be demon-possessed is different than being an unbeliever. You can be an unbeliever, and you can be marginal in your belief about God and the gospel and the cross and Jesus, but to be demon-possessed takes it to a whole different level. To be demon-possessed, you actually have to invite or open yourself up to a spiritual realm. And that can be through sin on a major level, or it can be through drugs. It can be through sorcery. It can be through just a, a number of different things. But imagine Mary. Whatever led her to that state in life, to be demon possessed with seven demons, and then to come in contact with Jesus and not be judged by him, but be delivered 
by him. And from that point on, her sole desire was to be with Jesus. And so those are our three examples of people in the resurrection. Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. With Peter, I kind of see it as somebody who was introduced to Jesus and though they wanted to get it right, there was a struggle. There there was a a yo-yo kind of walk, if you will. But after the resurrection, man, you just see an empowering and a different trajectory that his life takes. With James, thinking he knew who Jesus was, growing up in the same household, but yet, man, he didn't really know Jesus, did he? Not until after the resurrection. And then he comes to realize my, bro- my brother's the Messiah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> wow. And surrenders his life. And he would give us the epistle to James. Jude, his half-brother, would do the same thing. And then Mary Magdalene, somebody who was so lost, knew she was lost, knew without God she had no hope. After that, all you see in her life is I want to be where Jesus is. I just want to be where Jesus is. And, and that desire allowed her to go further than even the apostles of Jesus because she was the first one at the tomb. And she was the one, the first one that Jesus spoke to post-resurrection. And Jesus would make her an ambassador to, hey, go tell, go tell the apostles and make sure you tell Peter. Yeah, he messed up. But make sure you let them know that I've risen. My third and last point. Three things the resurrection means to the believer. And the emphasis is on the believer. Number one, everything he said is true. Everything that Jesus said is true. Muhammad is dead and buried. Judaism rejected and forsook their Messiah. Every false religion and worldly belief system that contradicts Jesus is a lie. There is one truth, one hope, one Savior, and his name is Jesus. In 1 John 2, verses 22 and 23, the Bible says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And so Jesus made salvation exclusive. It's not what religion you belong to. It's not what good works you do. It's not can your good works outweigh your bad works. It's answering the same question that Jesus would pose to his disciples. But who do you say that I am? There's only one answer. You're the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And I live my life in light that you are God. You are Lord. You run the show. I don't run the show. I don't run my life. You do. So number one, everything he said is true. Number two, because he rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. In John chapter 11, 
Jesus speaking to Martha says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And in the original language in the Greek is, are you believing this? Are you living modern day right now in your life as though Jesus is the resurrection and the life and because of what he did, you will rise from the dead? Are you believing this? Are you living this out? Is this a reality in your life? Number one, everything he said is true. Number two, because he rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. And finally, number three, he is all you will ever need. We have the misnomer to think that a change of state, some material blessing, some person is to be the fulfillment of our lives, to make us have a life, if you will, worth living. But the reality is all we need is Jesus. And the beauty about that is no matter where we are in throughout the panoply of history of time, incarcerated, a prisoner of war, lost at sea, living in paneled houses with roofs over our head and air conditioning homes, whatever state we find ourselves in, Jesus is truly all we've ever really needed. And that doesn't mean that we have to be guilty about the blessings that we have and the wonderful things in life that we're able to experience. But when we find ourselves empty, when we find ourselves wondering, is this all there is? He told us that that's not what life was supposed to be about. We're trying to fill, if you will, the void and the emptiness with things that we think are going to fulfill and satisfy. And all the while, Jesus is truly our satisfaction. Two sets of scriptures that I want to read as I close as it relates to He is all you will ever need. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, we're giving the calling card, if you will, of the Messiah. And this is a prophetic verse. It says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his names Gentiles will trust. The two little points that I want to draw out, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quenched. A reed is a piece of wood taken from the marsh that is cut a certain way and placed inside of a wind instrument to be able to give it the opportunity to, to play. Without that, you're just blowing air. But with the reed, it gives it the ability to do what it does. A bruised reed was good for nothing. A, a bruised reed was discarded. It's trash. It's junk. It, it doesn't fit its purpose. And of the Messiah, of Jesus, being that he is all you will ever need, a bruised reed he will not break. 
when the world discards us, when we're marginalized, when everyone else says that it's hopeless and it's useless. Jesus is able to come at us with a tenderness and a graciousness and an understanding not to blow us out of the water, not to cause us to just be discarded, to be rejected. He receives us. And so it is to our advantage to run to him. And, and all of us at times have questions and doubts and we wonder a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoking flax, it goes on to say, he will not quench. Imagine a, a candle with its wick and it's just at that point where it's, it's on, but it's about to be extinguished. It's on, but it's, oh, oh, you can't even, you know, you're burning your finger trying to light it. It's right, so small, but there it is. But of Jesus, it is said that a smoking flax he will not quench. And again, just the tenderness of that approach that God takes with you and with me as we're about to be snuffed out, as we're about to, to go over you know, the falls and just crash to our doom, just the tenderness that he's able to cup his hand and put it right around us in that moment and just to bring us in close and just say, I've got you, I understand, I'm with you. You're, you're not going to be extinguished. I'm not going to blow you out. Here, let's fan the flame. Let's get you going. Let's get you to the place where you belong. That is what is prophesied of the Messiah. My last section of scripture as it relates to he is all you'll ever need is Matthew chapter 11. And it's the last section there, verses 25 through 30. The Bible says, at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. You have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In John's Gospel, at the end of chapter 2 there, it says that Jesus didn't commit himself to man because he knew what was in man and he didn't have anyone to, to need to tell him what was in people. He, he, he understood people. He knew what was in us. And here where it says that Jesus wills to reveal himself to whom he will, it's those who he knows want him. God's not going to force himself on any one of us. God's not going to beat us up and, and, and do all of that. He, it's his goodness, the Bible declares, that leads us to repentance. And the, the wonderful things that we get to experience and see the hand of God working in our life and, and then God puts the opportunity out for us to be able to come to him, for us to be able to cry out to him and call upon him. And he knows those who want him to be revealed to. And he knows those who want nothing to do with him. It goes on in that scripture there, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you carrying a load? Are you burdened? Are you weighed down? Be it through circumstances, life, goals, not being accomplished, whatever it might be, Jesus has come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. Take all of that stuff and just lay it on me, Jesus is saying. But we do have a responsibility. Take my yoke. So I'm in the yoke and you yoke up with me and let's walk together through life. Why do we go it alone? Why do we choose to strive in our own strength as opposed to allowing God to lead us, to guide us? And really, he's doing the work. We're just yoked up with him, and then we somehow get credit. That's pretty awesome. So, everything he said is true. Because he rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead, and he is all you will ever need. If you ever get to a place where you're bothered, discontent, angry, struggling, you know, daily stuff that we go through, one of those things, if you ever get to that place, just take a step back and ask yourself, is Jesus enough in this moment? And then run to Jesus. And what you'll find is, he's enough. He's enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you accomplish on the cross and prove through the resurrection. And we pray, Father, that we would take advantage on whatever level of what you have for us. Lord, that we wouldn't resist you. That that we would bring you in, Lord, maybe little by little, or maybe like Mary Magdalene, with reckless abandon. We're just going to chase you and follow you, Lord, all the days of our life. But to whatever degree, whatever it is that we're longing for, I pray that in seeking you while you may be found, we discover that it was you all along. Thank you for what you've made available to us through the death, burial, and resurrection forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.